Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast, episode 21, with me, your host, Des Latham. Before we start, a quick thank you to Warren from Australia, who has provided a few excellent bits of advice. Your note also about the effect of a visit to Spion Corp was illuminating, so please keep these comments coming. After the last few weeks of Skorp, Skeet and Donner, which means kick, shoot and beat, we're shifting our gaze back to the western reaches of South Africa, back towards the Cape and Kimberley. There are many subtleties at play here, which we must address. General Redvers Buller has been demoted as Commander-in-Chief of the British Army Corps in South Africa, and his replacement, Lord Roberts, has already arrived in Cape Town. The original British plan was to drive a large army straight up the centre of South Africa northwards towards Pretoria, driving the Boers before this grand force. It was Buller who changed his mind in November 1899 and split the force in order to attempt to relieve 13,000 men trapped in Ladysmith. The result had been catastrophic for his army, as they were defeated in two big battles at Colenso in December and Spionkop in January. There was a further defeat, which we'll deal with later, at Valkrans, and by then Buller's own men, who'd backed him as their beloved leader, had realised their general was incapable of securing a proper victory. Lord Lansdowne, back in London, had long given up on Buller as a commander of the new form of mobile warfare that the Boers were dominating, which required initiative and creative management techniques. Lord Roberts was to be a different general, and one the Boers learned to both fear and hate. After all, Roberts and his assistant Lord Kitchener were behind what became known later as the concentration camps, where thousands of Boer women and children and black South Africans died. The diary of Christian de Vett is highly illuminating at this point. He was a senior burgher, but not in any real position of leadership when he received a note from Free State President Stein requesting that he take on the role of Fecht General, or Fighting General, to translate from the Dutch. At first he refused, saying he preferred to remain a private burgher, but after being pressed, he agreed. He climbed aboard a train at Elandslachter Station in Natal and headed off to Bloemfontein and then on to the front which lay south of the besieged diamond mining town of Kimberley. That, if you remember, is where Cecil John Rhodes is holed up. The English were dug in at the Moda River after their terrible defeat at Marcusfontein. That's a strategic town on the main railway line to Kimberley. The Boers controlled the north side of the Moda River and the town and had a formidable unit and a truly gifted mobile commander in General Cuis de la Rey. He was technically under the command of General Cronier, the Free State Army commander. Christian de Vett, who arrived from Ilanslachter, then asked for permission to take 1,500 men and carry on operations in the direction of Hopetown and Da'ar with the intention of breaking Lord Methuen's railway communications to the south. But Cronier, who was notoriously cautious, would hear nothing of the scheme. He preferred a full force to remain at Marcusfontein. Still, Delaray, who was now truly feared by the British, was sent to the commandos at Colesburg, and de Vett took over command of the Transvaal troops. We'll see how a simple change of leadership can inspire a demotivated group of fighters. In future episodes, I'll talk more about what Kurs de la Rey got up to around Colesburg and uh, in the area of uh, the Klein Karoo or the Small Karoo. Back near Marcusfontein, the British had taken to shelling the Boer positions unceasingly. As de Vett notes, at times, not more than four or five shells a day. At other times, over 400 Lydite shells exploded in the vicinity of the Boer lines. 
yet only one Boer was killed and two wounded in these many days of shelling. The vet explains, I do not want to imply that the British artillery were poor shots. Far from it. Their range was very good, as they had plenty of practice every day. Shot after shot went home. I, a scrub, I, a comparative immunity to a higher power, which averted misfortune from us. This belief by the Boers that they were God's chosen people had a major impact on their planning over the course of this three-year war. From the start, they believed their battles were righteous, David versus Goliath, and thus they thought victory in the end was certain. However, their senior commanders like Louis Boerta, Jan Smuts, and the political leader Paul Kruger knew it was far more likely that Goliath would win, but they were sure that if they bled the British enough, perhaps the British would allow them to retain their independence. The Boers warned General Cornier back at Marcusfontein about the likelihood of a British flanking attack, and de Wett again tried to convince his senior officer to change his mind and attack the railway line to the south with a large force. Again, Cronier refused, and the inevitable results of his policy became more and more apparent to his men. While the Boers were chomping at the bit, the British strategy here under Methuen had suffered from similar shortcomings they noted in Natal. A lack of proper intelligence reports was one, a lack of knowledge about the details of the geography was another. But they were unknowingly doing something quite important, and de Wet had put his finger on it. Methuen had decided to shell the Boers in their trenches in order to convince Cronier that he really needed to retain his entire force at one point. Methuen succeeded, much to the chagrin of Delaray and de Wet, and the commanders who demanded initiative action. But it was Roberts who now seized the initiative. His march to the north commenced on Sunday the 11th of February 1900. What became known as the Imperial Steamroller was in motion. An entire army corps began to move, and it was a sight to behold. Those watching included de Wet and Delaray and their scouts, and they were impressed. There were no flags and drums like in the American Civil War 30 years before, or the famous Napoleonic battles, or even the clashes recently against the Sudanese in Khartoum. True to the new style of warfare, the officers didn't carry swords. They carried magazine-loading .303 rifles, the new Lee Enfields. Kitchener himself left his medals behind, and his shirt was clear of any ribbons or shiny buttons, as these were excellent targets for Boer snipers. Lord Robert's army was massive by the numbers of the day, 40,000 men with 100 field guns or artillery. These included an entire division or 5,000 men on horseback. South Africa had never seen such an army before. The cavalry were under the command of Lieutenant Colonel John French, and it was he who led his men into a small town called Ramdam. For the first time in this war, the British had a proper flying column. The 5,000 strong horsemen were thought of as a way in which they could outboer the Boers. While this huge army moved, and they were motivated, there were the inevitable bleating sounds in Kimberley. Rhodes had made a final threat. The diamond miner, the millionaire, had given Lord Roberts a reckless ultimatum. Make the relief of the town the priority, or I shall surrender the biggest diamond-producing area in the world to the Boers. It was therefore the cavalry's task to ride like the wind to Kimberley before Rhodes carried out his threat. Lieutenant Colonel French commanded this charge, but he had some serious misgivings about Kitchener's transport arrangements. 
French referred to Lord Roberts and Lord Kitchener as Bobs and K, which sounds a little like a modern rap act. French said that he had kept his own transport arrangements safely out of Bob's and Kay's grasp, as the two lords had decided to take over all logistics. He also knew that riding like the wind to Kimberley would exact a heavy price on his cavalry. It would mean half rations for the men, horses dropping dead from exhaustion, heat and hunger. Many of the horses which now arrived from Argentina, the USA, Australia, Canada, even India, were not acclimatized, and they had suffered a grueling train ride from Cape Town to the front. They had also just suffered a grueling journey across the various oceans to the Cape, and he was worried about pushing them too hard too soon. But the state of the irregular cavalry, or as they were known, mounted infantry, was even worse. The new mounted units raised in the Cape went by the unfortunate title of Scallywag Corps and were regarded as a bunch of ruffians. The other troops, who were now known as mounted units, suffered from something far worse. Hundreds of troops were given horses but had never ridden any horse at any stage of their lives at all. Major Douglas Haig, who was to become a central figure in the First World War, was part of Lord Robert's army and wrote to his sister that furthermore... The Scallywag Corps disappear the moment a shot is fired, or there is the prospect of a fight. But French was now part of an army that outnumbered the Boers four to one. The steamroller that rolled into the small town of Ramdam was a sight to see. 34,000 troops and 4,000 black drivers and support staff, some would say specialists, spy corps, spread out across the felt. French's cavalry at the front, followed by Major General Charles Tucker's 7th Infantry Division, then Lieutenant General Thomas Kelly Kenny's 6th Division, the newly constituted 9th Division led by Major General Sir Henry Colville. There was also the Highland Brigade, which had been reconstituted after the thrashing they received at the hands of the Boers during the Battle of Marcusfontein. The rest, the 6,000 that remained, would act as a rear guard, and that made up the 40,000. As this vast army rolled out, in front there awaited a number of obstacles. Two of these were the Riet and Moda rivers, in addition to General Cours de la Rey and Christian de Vet commandos. The main obstacle, however, to the British was again logistics. They turned to march in a 40-kilometer arc from the east or to the right as they sought to outflank the Boers. The column was an incredible 160 kilometers long. The basic tactic was one that de Vett had expected along with the more thoughtful Boer commanders. It's known as an outflanking manoeuvre. A day after leaving their camp, this massive column arrived at the Riet River and forded it at three different points. Tucker's column on foot then held up the mule column, which contained food, ammunition and supplies. This was a mistake. The mules should have been ahead of the infantry, but Lord Roberts wasn't clear about how they'd ford the rivers. Another strange lack of forward thinking by strategically minded individuals. Back in the Boer camps, they once again watched the British plod forwards. Christian de Vett had 350 men under his command and watched uh, French's massive force with disquiet. As I stood on the ridges of Marchesfontein, he writes, I was able to look down upon the British camps and I saw that it would be sheer madness to put 350 men against General French's larger force. At the same time, French was growing frustrated. His men had crossed the Riet on Monday, but had to wait until Thursday at 10 in the morning to begin their so-called flying column towards the Boers. 
It was also the worst time of the day to start moving. The sun had heated the ground to over 35 degrees already, and the dust choked both animals and soldiers. The Boers had around 2,000 men prepared to face this monster of a force. Back in his simple wagon, the commander-in-chief, Roberts, took stock. He had been forced by Cecil John Rhodes to deviate from his straightforward plan, and this was to have implications for his supplies and his men. The invasion of the Free State had been greatly complicated by the need to relieve the siege of Kimberley, or rather the siege of Rhodes. Roberts had reason to be worried. The flanking march, which had worried his opponent, De Vette, was not going according to plan. Besides taking longer than anticipated, Lord Roberts had now got wind of Buller's third major defeat in Natal, which we haven't covered yet. That was as he again tried to cross the Tugela and defeat the Boers outside Ladysmith along a mountain called Val Kranz. It was 10 kilometers to the east of the terrible Spionkop mountain, and once again Buller had been driven back by the Boers with a loss of over 330 men. That had scared Roberts. He now ordered Buller to stop attacking and to turn to a defensive position instead. Alongside Roberts in the Cape, Kitchener harumphed like the parody of the very British general that he was. Kitchener, who became famous for Your Country Needs You posters in the First World War and his pointy finger, was imperious. He had bright blue eyes and a huge moustache and was totally unemotional in public. He had a face like a bronze idol, writes Thomas Packenham, and a moustache like a palm tree. But Kitchener was also a sociopath. He loved punishments, like chopping off the hands and legs of Africans during his campaign in the Sudan, where he claimed he was only doing what the locals expected. Kitchener had a small circle of friends he called his band of boys, with whom he relaxed. And he had one major emotional weakness. He was prone to outbursts of self-destructive rage. Kitchener would be part of Lord Robert's staff office component and was politically expedient. I've introduced Kitchener for a number of reasons, and you'll see later in the series the full extent of his self-serving imperialist hatefulness. A far more interesting character in this mix of British leadership at this stage was Colonel George Henderson. He was the author of the bestseller Stonewall Jackson, who was the Confederate commander who led the Union troops on a year-long dance during the American Civil War. Jackson's tactics were to throw the much more powerful Union forces into chaos at times, and he seemed like a ghost of the South. Henderson was fascinated by the Civil War commander and how he understood geography, landscape, logistics, and human morale. In South Africa, the Boers were actually using Jackson's techniques automatically because that's how they'd fought for close to 300 years. Henderson was given a job as Director of Intelligence, and he took a page out of Stonewall Jackson's book. Jackson tried to march on Washington, avoiding the usual routes like major roads, and so too Henderson, who advised Roberts to change tactics away from the railways, which tied them down and made any strategic initiative difficult, as the Boers always knew where they were going. We need to outboer the Boer, was one thought. Why not break away from the railway line? Roberts built a mobile force, which could be independent by stocking up on horses, mules, bullock wagons, carriages, ox wagons. The idea was to launch from the railway line north of the Orange River Bridge into the felt like a land-driven armada. They would then strike back towards the railway line 200 kilometers south of Bloemfontein around Colesburg in a coup worthy of Stonewall Jackson. 
trap the Boer raiding parties behind them, capture the Boer Free State capital of Bloemfontein, and relieve Kimberley, and then Ladysmith, and then Pretoria. But this was predicated on Bowen's simple concept. Surprise. The ruse was to convince the Boers that the town they were targeting was Norvald's Point, a bridge held by the Boers and facing the British garrison at Colesburg. But Roberts tired of this intelligence-driven game and decided just to do what the Boers thought he would do, march straight up the railway line to Kimberley, then turn northeast and take Bloemfontein. What really changed his mind at the 11th hour was Cecil John Rhodes, who had been bullying the English military leadership for three months. Furthermore, Milner, who was the Cape governor, had warned that the Boers of the Cape were on the cusp of rising up in a revolt. So far, they had remained out of the war, but for how much longer? As the British defeats mounted, including the terrible Spionkop, Milner feared the Cape Boers were becoming emboldened. To this day, one of the paradoxes of Lord Roberts' planning was his decision not to send any reinforcements to General Buller in Natal. Buller now had around 25,000 Boers to deal with around Ladysmith, compared to Lord Roberts' 10,000 Boer opponents around Kimberley. Yet Roberts kept his 40,000 troops and left Buller with his 30,000, which were too few at that point to scare the Boers into retreat. Roberts, however, was using a very tried and tested technique of not weakening his force. Roberts then also fired and replaced a long list of officers just before the final push, and then he made what was to be a blunder by British forces during the Anglo-Boer War. I've read through these stories and thought about these leaders a lot over at least 30 years and looked at their qualities under pressure. If you are to consider those erudite and grand books by Clausewitz on war, for example, or Sun Tzu's Art of War, you will see how managing a crisis with a clear head and clear goals about outcomes particularly is crucial to success. Both Bobs and Kay, or Roberts and Kitchener, thought they were in control of their logistics but failed to properly understand the intricate and decentralized system in the British Army. Both, in essence, were control freaks. Let's look at something fundamental about systems. Each British commanding officer was responsible for the day-to-day food supplies. But the generals in South Africa tried to run all of these things themselves. Buller did it too, Methuen had done it, and Lord Roberts and Kitchener, or Bob Zinkay, were to repeat this pattern. They had a serious misconception about food carts. They believed it was a wasteful pattern to allow devolution. The reality in an environment like South Africa was allowing local junior officers to run their own logistics made more sense. Being able to move food and supplies around fast and close to the attacking troops was a better idea. If you're waiting for some general to tick a box somewhere out of sight, you can obviously see how badly this could go for troops on the ground if the local commander can't determine where to move his wagons containing food, water and ammunition on a minute-by-minute basis. Furthermore, these two military outsiders, Bobs and Kay, distrusted the stable system, and they swept aside the first-line regimental transport concept where ammunition and fighting materials, as well as food, were delivered directly. Instead, they created a general transport method, which was makeshift and dotted with untrained transport officers. In the middle of a war, they replaced a technical skill with a general skill. Think of an airline pilot being replaced in mid-flight by people who pilot boats. That's the general effect of what happened next to the British Army in Africa. It was joked about later that Bobs and Kay stood for Bobs and Chaos. Not funny if you're a British soldier when your ammunition disappears along with your food and water. 
Back in Kimberley, Rhodes was again bothering Kekovich. Remember this poor British commander who'd been sent to Kimberley at the last moment and immediately Rhodes had set about destroying Kekovich's authority. Roberts was aware of Rhodes's destructive self-absorption and preferred not to let the De Beers Diamond Company owner know anything about any plans. That was until the 9th of February, just before the 11th marching date, when Roberts seems to have lost his temper with Rhodes and sent a telegram to Kekovich which was rather ominous for Rhodes at that point. It read... You have the permission to arrest any individual, no matter what may be his position, who threatened national interests. What that boiled down to was, should Rhodes try to surrender, throw him in jail. Things were moving swiftly, however, and it was all down to General Christian de Vets, who, like Dadaray, was to prove a master tactician when it came to mobile warfare. De Vette knew that Robert's weakness, if he moved away from the railway, was his oxen, mules and horses. The vet rode up in the meantime with around 400 burghers. He ambushed the convoy and stampeded most of the 3,000 oxen, leaving 200 wagons or a third of the entire logistics force available to Roberts stranded with the drivers alongside the Riet River. Although de Vette was hampered by a number of other things, including the fact that at Pardeberg's drift close to where the French had crossed, the Free State unit was largely composed of what the Boers called water draggers, or what the English would call non-combatants. But he still managed to pull off a strategic coup in seizing half the wagons and then fighting against a far stronger force for 12 hours, leading to the English eventually withdrawing and retreating. De Vette inspected the wagons and rights. Our booty was enormous and consisted of 200 heavily laden wagons, 12 water carts and trolleys. On some wagons we found clinkers, biscuits, jam, milk, sardines, salmon, corned beef and other such provisions. But what to do with this haul? Wasting no time, the vet ordered his men to inspan the wagons and ordered the black drivers who'd just been working for the British to help, which they did. The strange procession then headed off north. On the way, De Vette seized 56 British soldiers who were part of an advance guard awaiting Lord Roberts. At the same time, somewhere overnight on the 19th, French had managed to break through the Boer ranks and was galloping towards Kimberley. About half the remaining wagons were saved from the Boers, but Roberts experienced his first humiliation and went his last at the hands of the mercurial foe. The next telegram Roberts received was far more positive, as French and his cavalry were apparently sweeping towards Kimberley, having pushed onwards from the Moda River. His saviour in this hour of need was French. This was the tough, no-nonsense, philandering, charismatic leader. No doubt a terrible example to his men ethically, but a great example strategically. He brought Roberts back to the fact that he still had his entire logistics wagon train, having refused to allow Kitchener to fiddle with the structure. His wagons were safe. Kitchener's had been seized. General Cronier had suddenly broken camp, and the Boers began to retreat, and De Vette and the other commando leaders were ordered to go and give assistance to the Free State General. The withdrawal was towards the range of hills called Pardebach, and that's where the next battle takes place. So finally the British steamroller begins to move after months of Boer victories and sorties which have kept various commanders such as Methuen and Buller and others on their toes. The initiative now swings inexorably towards the British. Troops believe it's now a matter of using their massive force to roll up any opposition, to march to Bloemfontein and then to Pretoria and voila, the war is over. But the Boers had other ideas.
Join me next week for episode 22 of the Anglo-Boer War, where we probe the Battle of Padelbach. Don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes, please, so we get more exposure for this epic story from Africa. And please check out our website, abwarpodcast.com, our Facebook page, Anglo-Boer War Podcast, and you can message on Twitter, at Des Latham. Goodbye. <laughs> En zonder gedaan langs die moeier die ze wel het zeeverorlogsdagen bleef. O breng mij terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar mijn zaar is.